We're going to grab our Bibles now. We're going to study uh, God's Word together. This is an act of worship here at Harvest that we press into the Lord, that we get to know Him more. We get to know more about His grace and His love for us uh, through the study of His Word. And so we're going to Nehemiah chapter 2. We've been studying the book of Nehemiah now a couple weeks. We started a, a new series um, a few weeks ago called Taking New Ground for God's Glory. And uh, that's what we're trying to do this fall, this season here at Harvest as we jump into a new ministry year is to press forward, to keep taking steps forward with the Lord and see him do new things in our hearts, in our church, in our community. And we're, doing, we're believing that by faith and we're asking God to work. And, and uh, we're going to learn from Nehemiah's example on what our part is in the taking new ground equation. Um, so today we're going to look at taking new ground through action in Nehemiah chapter 2. So I was thinking this week that there was, you know, several, several years ago now, um, I was part of a men's group at our church. And uh, we decided that we were going to go whitewater rafting in West Virginia. And uh, this is my first time ever going whitewater rafting. I was so excited to go and do this. It was, it was, a, it was something I'd always wanted to do. And so we go. And, it was, and honestly, it was one of the most exhilarating and kind of exciting things I've ever got to do with a group of guys. But, but when you first get there and you've never done it, you, you don't know what you're doing. And so they get you in the, in the calm water, right? They start you in the, the easy part of the river first. And they start teaching you all the commands, you have a guide at the back of your boat, and he tells you what to do. He says, all right, so there was four commands we had to learn. He said, first is forward, which is forward. That one's pretty straightforward. That was simple, right? So he's paddle forward. If he says forward, he says, he says reverse, start paddling backwards so he can kind of reposition the boat where it needs to go. He said, there's hold, which means stop paddling so I can do what I need to do because y'all are messing it up. And then the fourth and final command was go, 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 go. And that was like paddle as hard as you can, fast as you can, no matter what. And, um, and so we said, okay, good. We got the commands down. And we started down the river. And there were like three different rafts um, of, for our group. And, and there was one of, our, one of the rafts in our group, the guys were not really paying attention quite as much. And they were kind of goofing around and didn't really care so much about getting wet. And so they flipped their raft, I think, like three or four times in a matter of two days. Um, and, but in our raft, I had some older gentlemen with me, and they were set on not getting wet. And so, like, we were listening, and we were digging in, and we were doing the thing. We made the whole two days without ever tipping that raft um, by the grace of the Lord. And, but what I, what I thought was really interesting was as we started down the river, and we started hitting all the rapids, that the time when we would hit the biggest, deepest, strongest rapids is when the guide would say, go, 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 go. And he's like, man, just when we were in those biggest ones, you had to dig in and paddle as hard as you could and listen to his instructions if you wanted to stay upright, if you wanted to be able to keep going. It was the biggest adver- was when the biggest adversity of the river came is when we had to listen the closest and work the hardest. And the same thing is true in the Christian life. If, when you signed up for Jesus, if somebody told you, that after you said yes to Jesus, everything was going to be easy sailing from that point forward, they sold you a bill of goods. I'm just going to be straight up honest with you. That's not the way this life works. In fact, when you start following Christ, you're going to see that there's going to be adversity after adversity after adversity. The difference is now we have a guide to listen to. And if we'll dig in and do what he's telling us to do, that he will take us through every rapid, every adversity, every time. It requires listening and acting in accordance to what he says. So taking new ground requires faithful action in the face of adversity. That's what we're going to see today with Nehemiah. Taking new ground with the Lord requires faithful action in the face of adversity. So with that in mind, 
Chapter, nine, or chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 9, picking up the story where we left it off last week. Nehemiah says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent, me, uh, had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. And then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode, and I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the, by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So three things we're going to see today in this passage about taking faithful action. Number one, overcome obstacles with planning. The first thing we see Nehemiah do in accordance with the Lord is to overcome obstacles with planning. So he shows up. So last week, you know, he went to the king. He asked to be able to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. King said yes. So now he's made the trip. He's made all the trip all the way to Jerusalem. He's in Judea. And he shows up not just with the letters that the king had given him that he'd asked for for protection and for lumber, but he shows up with an armed guard. <laughs> he's got some of the, the king's troops with him to come in. And this wasn't just for protection. This was to validate Nehemiah's authority. Right? There's a new guy. They, they didn't have phones and emails and all that kind of stuff to, for the king to ring up the guy. They had to somehow prove this really was from the king. So he came with letters that would have been marked with the king's seal. He came with the, the king's uh, guard. This was to show that Nehemiah had the authority of the king to do what he was about to do. And no doubt, Nehemiah knew this was necessary because he knew there would be opposition. Because there were some guys in the region, there were some governors, there were some rulers who were used to having control over this area and specifically this city, and they didn't want to give it up. So he comes with what he needs to prove that, hey, this is it. So he planned and he prepared accordingly, and he shows up, and sure enough, he meets these two guys, Sanballat and Tobiah. You're going to see these guys show up all throughout the book of Nehemiah, and they're going to be a pain in the neck for Nehemiah, okay? Um, these, from other historical records, we know that these were probably uh, either the governors or, or at least in the governing families of the region at this time. And so these were the guys who had the most to lose by Nehemiah showing up. And it says that it displeased them greatly when they found out that someone had come to seek the, the welfare of the people. Because that meant they were going to lose control. They were going to lose power. They were going to lose some of their advantages in Jerusalem. And so they're going to become this ongoing obstacle for Nehemiah, an ongoing obstacle for the project that he's going to be working on here, as you're going to see in the coming chapters. But he gets there, he shows them the letters, they can't really do anything about it because the king said so, and so he, he goes to Jerusalem and says he was there three days, which seems like a, kind of this like a, kind of insignificant little detail, but think about this. Nehemiah, again, remember, he's a man of action, right? Like get there, get it done, get to work, but he waits three days before he does anything. He doesn't come in day one, guns a-blazing, like, he knows he's the newcomer. 
He has to establish himself. He has to establish his reputation and his, his, his relationships. And he has to, to get some people like, listen, this is from the king. And kind of acclimate everybody to here's where we're headed. And so he's patient with his leadership. That's so important. Sometimes God calls us to do something and something big for him. But it doesn't mean get ahead of him. Sometimes we have to be patient with the Lord and let him establish what he needs to establish. And so he comes in with patient leadership three days, and then he, doesn't, he still doesn't talk to them yet. He needs to research. He needs to do some planning so he knows what it's going to take to rebuild the walls. And so by night, he goes out, and he secretly goes around, and he assesses the walls of Jerusalem that are broken down. He says, I told no one what I was going to do. This is good, wise leadership. Okay? He's planning, he's preparing before he takes it to the people. He says the officials didn't know. The officials would be like the governors, the Sanballat and Tobiah guys. And he said the Jews didn't know, the people who were going to have to actually do the work. He's like, I haven't told them yet what's coming. But first got to get my plan together. You see, what's important here is that before communicating everything out to the people, he had to draft a plan that could help them overcome the obstacles. Because he knew what the people were going to say. When he, if he would have walked in day one and be like, all right, guys, everybody grab a shovel. We're rebuilding these walls. They were going to say, have you seen the walls? <laughs> like, you just got here. Have you, they're in really bad shape. That's the reason they haven't been rebuilt for the last 13 years when we've been living here is because they're really bad and we don't have that many people. And these, these guys, Sanbout and Tobiah, I don't know if you've met them yet, but they don't really want us to rebuild the walls because they're, they're happy. Do you, you, I don't think you know what you're talking about, Nehemiah. And he knew all that was coming. He knew the obstacles. So he had to create a plan that would lead the people through that and past that so they could accomplish what God had called them to do. Nehemiah knew there would be obstacles, but that didn't stop the process. They just needed a plan. God's plan, more importantly. Now, I was thinking this week, um, it was just, I think, a little over a year ago this month when we first um, became aware of this opportunity to adopt the church at Afton into the Harvest Church family. It's been about a year. That's crazy. Some of y'all are like, I didn't know it was a year. It's because we didn't tell you, <laughs> right? Like, before we brought it to the church, we were doing a lot of preparation and planning, and we were doing some research to see, like, is this what is good and right? We had to explore the opportunity from both sides. And there were so many positives on both sides. We were missionally aligned. We had the same, very same, similar vision in terms of discipleship. Um, there was, you know, we knew that we could be stronger together than these two separate churches doing their thing. We knew that there was a, a great location available that we could be using to make disciples and to be doing church there on the corner in Afton. There were so many pauses, but we still had to, to prepare and plan and look at what are the obstacles that we might have to overcome for this to work. And there were some. And so we started working through those. And, and as I've walked through things like this in my own life and through our church, and, and as I've looked at you know, examples in the Bible, I feel like there's kind of three major categories of obstacles that oftentimes will come against the work of the Lord or come against us in our life when we're trying to do something for him. And so let me see if I can kind of point these out. So the first one I would call external obstacles. 
External obstacles are those things that are outside of the work, right? They're not actually part of what we're doing. They're outside of it, but they have an impact on it, right? They're hurdles that we still have to overcome from outside sources and outside things. Whenever we first started looking at the adoption here, there were, there were some financial and some legal hurdles that we had to work through and we had to figure out because there were some laws and there were some things that were going on outside of the churches that we had to deal with to make sure we were doing this in a reputable way that was above board and honorable and making sure that we're, you know, we're keeping the name of Christ um, in good standing as we're walking through this process. So we had to plan that. We had to work through that. We had to figure that out before we could step into this. And those were external obstacles. Second category is circumstantial obstacles. Now, this is kind of similar to external because they are outside of the project a lot of times. They're outside of the work. But circumstantial obstacles are different because they're oftentimes unforeseen. They're they're the unknowns that we don't even know are obstacles until they pop up. Nobody knew they were coming. Nobody could plan for these because they just kind of show up out of the blue. So what possibly could have happened in the last year that was an unforeseen obstacle. Oh yeah, two weeks after we adopted, the world imploded on itself, um, and and we had we had to figure out how to do church online and how to serve people and take care of people and phone calls and note note cards and everything changed. And there's no way that last September when we started planning this that we could have ever thought that that was coming. But there was a circumstantial obstacle that just kind of came up. No one could expect it, and we had to work through it. And by the grace of God, God's hand's been so good on through this whole process. It slowed things down. <laughs> we weren't able to do everything we wanted to do in the time we wanted to do it. But we have been able, by God's grace, to continue to work through integrating two churches together, bringing together two families and bringing new members in through phone calls and cards and all these things. And he continues to prepare us for this wonderful building that we've got over there in Afton that we're working to get ready and working to make a plan so that we can use it for the best ability possible for the kingdom. So it slowed things down, but we're still working through the process through the circumstantial obstacles. But there's a third type of obstacle, internal obstacles. And honestly, internal obstacles sometimes are the biggest obstacles of all. These are the obstacles that oftentimes lie within our own hearts and within our own circles of influence. The things that because we're broken sinners, imperfect people, that sometimes we get off sideways on things and we don't see things the way God sees them and our pride or our selfishness or our desires or whatever it is kind of gets in the way sometimes of God's work. Anybody else ever experienced that? Am I the only one? Sometimes my heart is the biggest obstacle in me doing what God has told me to do. And so we have to deal with these internal obstacles. Thankfully, to be quite honest with you, and I'm not blowing smoke here, this process of bringing two churches together and bringing these new members into Harvest has actually had very little, if any, of these. This has, I've been in church a long time. I grew up in church. I've seen my dad pastor. I've pastored a couple different places now. Like, I have never seen a group of people be more gracious and humble and kingdom-minded about, it doesn't matter, let's just do this for the Lord. And that's exactly the kind of hearts that we need to be able to make, take new ground for God and continue to do this for us. We've seen very little of these internal obstacles, honestly. However, I do know that as we continue to move forward, as we continue to take new ground, there are going to be some things that God does in our hearts. 
There are going to be some things that he's refining, that he's, he's checking, he's, he's ch- wanting to change in us personally in order to get ourselves out of the way and to get us on the plan and on the work that he has for us to do. And so in the weeks and months to come, as we continue to walk forward and we see lots of more that we still have to do and change and work, do not be surprised if God starts to reveal some things in your heart, some internal obstacles that he's wanting to take you through and to overcome by the power of his spirit. But as we step into these things, we have to do what Nehemiah did. These are all normal. It is normal to experience obstacles when you are walking with the Lord, when you're doing his work. Every time I've ever done anything that the Lord's called us to do, there's been obstacles. So this is normal, but the difference is the obstacles can't stop the work of God if we have a strong calling, if we have a clear plan, and if we have faithful leadership like we see here in Nehemiah. To take new ground with God, we must overcome obstacles through his plan. His plan. And that's desperately what we're looking for here at Harvest. Not our plans, not the city's plans, not what are God's plans? What's God have for us? Let's plan to follow that. So that's the first faithful action that God calls us to. Second thing I want to show you, though, look at verse 17 there in chapter 2 still. We'll keep moving. It says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Second faithful action, number two, defeat discouragement with passion. Defeat discouragement with passion. So Nehemiah, he gets his plan together, and he finally goes to the people, and he says, look, do you see the trouble? Do you see the trouble? And they're like, yeah, we've been the ones living here. You just showed up. We know exactly what the problem is. We've, we've lived with the broken walls for years now. But what I think Nehemiah is saying is, do you really? Yeah, you've been living here. This has been your reality. But do you really see the problem anymore? Sometimes the longer that we see through a certain set of lenses, the more we can fail to see the reality that others can see because they haven't been living in it. Let me see if I can give you an an illustration here to kind of help you explain what I'm talking about. So in our married life, we have owned, bought, and sold two or three different houses now. And every time we get ready to sell a house, you know, you go through the whole process, right? You clean it all up, and you move stuff out, and you get everything ready. And then you invite the realtor to come in and, like, you know, help you, you know, make how much, is it, how much can we sell it for, and what's the thing? And you always think that when you're like, you've done your job, and the realtor's going to come in, like, oh, this is awesome. Yep, ready to go on the market tomorrow? No. 
they walk in, they're like, yeah, we probably need to fix that, and we probably need to move that over here and get rid of this and furniture and maybe switch this room with that room or whatever the thing is. And you're like, what? Like, we, like we, we try to do a pretty good job of keeping our house straight and nice and clean and, you know, in, in, in a very, um, you know, livable condition. But the more we're in a house, the more we're in a situation, the more you just kind of get used to certain things, right? Things that maybe would have bothered you at the beginning, they just don't really bother you anymore because you've kind of just gotten used to the fact that that drawer just always kind of sticks like that. Like, it just, like you just learn to live with stuff, and you stop seeing some of the problems that when a new person walks in, they see it immediately. You know what I'm talking about? They just have a different vision. They have a different ability to see than you do because you've just kind of gotten used to it. I think that's what Nehemiah is dealing with the people here on. I think this is something that can happen to us as Christians and as the church if we're not careful. Some of us, we've been walking with Christ for so long, or we've been doing church a certain way for so long, that we think it's all great, and we don't see any of the problems, and we don't see it the way that maybe the unchurched, unsaved, lost person sees it when they walk in the doors. And there are some things that maybe bother them or make them uneasy or, or create a barrier for them that we just don't really think about or see anymore because we're so stuck in our Christian church tunnel vision that we've just kind of become immune to those things. And if we're going to continue to step forward and take new ground for Christ, if we're going to continue to maximize all that he's given us as a church in terms of resources and people and ministries and we have to learn to step back and sometimes see things through a different lens. We have to be willing to see things through the eyes of the people that we're trying to reach so that when they come in, that we've, as much as we can, we've removed all hindrances and all barriers so that they can get to Jesus. Nehemiah says, we got a problem here, guys, and you don't really see it anymore. But then I love what he says next. He says, you see the trouble that we are in. Nehemiah doesn't shame them. He doesn't blame them. He doesn't try to, to, to hurt them in some way with this. He says, no, no, I'm right here with you. I'm coming in. We're going to do this together. I've got a plan, and, and this doesn't have to just be you anymore. We're going we're gonna to do this as a team. Nehemiah, he's, he's calling the people out. He's saying, come, let us build the wall. I've got a plan, but it's going to take all of us working together. He's calling the people out of discouragement and into action. And to back it up, he goes on and he says, I love this, he says, I told them of the hand of my God that was upon me. Nehemiah knows it's not enough just to tell people to do something. You have to give them the why. And he roots it right back in the hand of God that's already been working for months, maybe even years prior to this moment. Preparing Nehemiah's heart, preparing the king, giving him the letters, giving him the supplies, bringing him there. God has already been working in this situation. He says, the good hand of God has been upon me, and he is doing this, and now you get to do it with me, and you get to do it with him. And he roots it in the testimony of God. This wasn't Nehemiah's plan. This was God's plan. 
This wasn't the king's plan. This wasn't the people's plan. This was God working and moving and leading his people to do a great work for him. And the same power of God that got Nehemiah to this point is going to be the same power of God that moves the people forward to accomplish this huge work of the Lord in record time. And what I think we see here is that the power of God at work fuels a passion for God's work in his people. If we really want to be about taking new ground with the Lord and doing the work that God's called us to do as a church, it doesn't start with us just rolling up our sleeves and getting in there. It starts with us getting in our hearts the passion of Jesus Christ for the gospel and for the mission and for the lost and for making disciples so that we have something rooted in us that drives us forward in the work. Nehemiah brought that passion to the people, and it was contagious. As soon as he gets done, the people are like, yeah, let's do it. Let's build, right? Let's rise up and build, they say, because passion for the Lord is contagious. If you get on fire for God, it will spread to all those around you. They're like, yes, let's do this. We want to walk with God, too. We want to experience the good hand of God on our lives too. Nehemiah, we want what you've got. And so it says they strengthened their hands for the work. Passion for God defeats discouragement from the enemy. Every time, all the way, when we get our hearts lit up with the fire of God, it will carry us through any discouragement that the enemy can throw at us. And there's another one coming right on the heels of the speech. Notice right after he gets the people all riled up and they're like, yeah, let's build. Guess who shows up? Sanballat and Tobiah. And they've got a third guy now, guess, and they brought in reinforcements. And it says that they jeered them and they despised them and they accused them of rebelling against the king. They knew they couldn't stop them by force because they had the king's guard and they had the letters. They couldn't physically stop them. So now they're going to try to discourage them. Right? They're going, they're going to, to, to question their motives. They're going to question their resolve. They're going to bring opposition and rumors and threats. So yeah, well, we're going to tell the king what you're doing and just wait. What's going to happen next? And they're trying to discourage them. Just like when Christ was here on earth doing the work of the Lord through his ministry and ultimately through his death and sacrifice. Think about all the people along the way who jeered at him and despised him and challenged him. If that's the guy we follow, why would we expect anything less? So what do we do? What do we do when others try to discourage what God has called us to? Look at Nehemiah. He doesn't even respond to their comment about the king. Look what he says. He says, God will make us prosper. King. I ain't worried about no king. This is God's work. This is God's plan. He takes it right back to the source of their mission, the source of their passion. If this is God's project, then nobody's going to stop it. He says, we need not be discouraged by opposition. Just keep faith in the Lord. Keep faith in his work. So he says, God will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. Enough talk, time for action, 
right? Don't listen to them. Don't, li- don't, don't, don't pay them any attention. Just get to work. Do what the Lord has called you to do. Passion for God defeats discouragement from the enemy. Every time. One of Satan's greatest tools against us as Christians, I believe, is discouragement. He loves to try to discourage us. He knows he can't stop us. He knows he can't steal our faith because it is secured in Jesus Christ. So what's he try to do? He tries to discourage us in our walk. He throws up all of our past sins in our face. He, he, he throws up our current sins and struggles. Says, what are you talking about in small group? You didn't even tell them what really happened last night. He throws our failures at us. He, he, he throws our struggling relationships and our, our, our broken promises and all the stuff that we still struggle with because we're imperfect people. And he tries to discourage us from following the Lord. But our passion for God is our greatest defense against the discouragement of the enemy. But that passion will only work, and that passion will only hold strong if it's rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can't just be passion for passion's sake. It just can't be passion because the pastor gets up here and yells a lot and gets you all psyched up. It has to be passion that is rooted in the Lord and in his word. You see, when I have Christ, anything Satan can throw at me has no effect. The reason that I don't get discouraged is because when Satan comes and says, you're a sinner, you're a liar, you didn't do this, you didn't do that, I'm like, yeah, I know. It doesn't matter. I got Jesus. Boom. <laughs> like, like That's the end of the discussion. Because that's the heart of the gospel. The gospel tells us very plain and clear that we are all sinners, that we are all broken, that we are all imperfect people, and that we cannot make ourselves right again. Our only hope is that Jesus does it for us, that God sent his son to live a perfect and sinless life that we could never live, and to go to the cross in our place, and to pay for our sin, and to take our death upon himself, and then go to the ground only to rise three days later, like we just sang, to prove that he was God and to say, listen, I've done the work. If you'll come, if you'll repent of your sin and believe in me, I will wash you clean and I will carry you all the way through this life to eternity with the Father. And every step we take makes us a little bit more like Jesus and a little bit more like Jesus and a little bit more like Jesus, but none of us are perfect. And so when the devil throws that up in your face, you'd be like, you're right. I am a sinner. I am imperfect. I did do that. But you know what? Jesus is bigger. And he'll deliver me from everything that you have to throw. Discouragement doesn't have to be the end. I belong to one who is greater than Satan and greater than anything that he can throw at me. Therefore, I never have to be discouraged as long as I have him. To take new ground, we must defeat discouragement with fervent passion for God and his mission. 
Because here's the thing I've learned about Satan. He doesn't stop. I'll give, I'll give him that. One thing about Satan is he is not a quitter. Right? He will come back at you time and time and time again. And every time we go back to the fire that we have inside of us, the passion of the Holy Spirit that tells us, no, we belong to Jesus. Satan, you have no power here. And we walk on in the work of the Lord. One more faithful action here that I want to point out this morning. And actually, it's in, ver- it's in chapter 3. And I'm actually going to cover all of chapter 3 here. It's a long chapter. It's a long list of all the people who were working and all the work that they did on the project. Here. I'm not going to read all of it word for word this morning because a lot of it's repetitive. I'm going to highlight some specific points in this passage that I think are important. And you can read it for yourself in its entirety later. But let's start in verse 1, chapter 3. It says, Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate, and they consecrated it and set its doors. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. Next to him, Zachar, the son of Emery, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshalem, the son of Barakah, son of uh, Meshazabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. Let's pause there. The third action I see here in chapter 3 is this. Lay down pride for partnership. If we're going to faithfully follow the Lord in his work, we can't do it alone. God's never asked us to. He never expects us to. He expects us to do it together. But it means me laying down my pride in order to partner with others in the work. One of the things you're going to see as you read through chapter 3 is there's one, actually two words, one idea that's repeated all throughout the chapter. These ideas of built, built, repaired, repaired. You'll see that word repeated over and over again. That's a major theme in this chapter. And the Hebrew word there that, that we translate repaired means to make firm, to make strong, right? God's, he's calling the people here, he's leading his people to make the walls of the city strong again. But let me let you in on a little secret. It's not just about the walls. Sure, the walls are the work, but making the walls strong is not all that he's doing. He's saying, as we're doing this, he's also leading the people to make their faith and their commitment and their following of him strong again as well. They've gotten weak over the years as they've been separated from the temple and the priesthood and all this kind of stuff. It's all kind of starting back up the last few years, but it's still not there yet. So he's calling the people to build the walls, but also to build trust in the Lord and in his mission and to grow strong in their faith again as they do the work of the Lord. And it starts off with Eliashib, the high priest, says that he built the sheep gate. I think it's important that he's listed first here. You've got to remember the high priest was the top spiritual leader, the, the head guy of all of Judaism. And yet he is not above doing his part in the work. In fact, not only is he willing to work, he's the first one listed in this long line of workers because he is the one leading the way. He's the first one to step up and say, yes, we're going to do this. Give me a hammer. And he starts building. Great leaders lead not just by talking, but by doing. And the leadership here, he gets in there and he starts 
beginning to work. And as we read deeper, not just him, but all the priests come and start building, which was definitely outside of their normal wheelhouse. Um, later on, we even see that the Levites get in on it, which were like the worship leaders and like the preachers of the day. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the artsy and bookworm guys pick up a hammer. Like that's a miracle of the Lord, right? Um, I remember whenever I was pastoring back in Indiana, it was a kind of a small rural church and a lot of farmers and factory workers and manual labor kind of guys. <laughs> one time we were at the church working on a project and uh, I was struggling a little bit, just to be honest. And one of, the, one of the guys came up and he said, said, you know what I've learned about pastors? I said, I said, what's that? And he said, usually the worse they are with the hammer, the better they are in the pulpit. And I was like, hallelujah, amen, I'll take that, okay? So, um, you know, we all have our strengths. But in this case, God is calling everyone in on the work. And so the spiritual leaders are leading the way in being the first to do it. Not only did he start to build, but it says he also consecrated the work. Again, he's showing this. This isn't just a physical endeavor. This is a spiritual endeavor. This isn't just about a wall. This is about the work of the Lord and the faith that he is building in his people. God uses the physical things of this world to achieve spiritual things for his kingdom. You know, ministry is not all about Equipment and trailers and trucks and buildings and money. But those are all things that God uses to achieve spiritual things through those resources. So we don't want, we don't want church ever to be about the resources, but we do want to use the resources and build the resources in a way that are going to be most effective to achieve the spiritual goals that God has given us. So then we go into this long list of all these people, all these workers who are in action and getting after it for the Lord. Again, I'm not going to read all of them. Let me highlight a few of them for you. Look at verse 7. It says, Next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite and Jaden the Maranathite, men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Okay? So now we got these guys that aren't even Jerusalem residents. They don't even live in this city. This isn't even their thing. And yet, they're from Gibeon, they're from Mizpah, and they're still here building. They're still helping repair because they believe in the work of the Lord. They believe in the God of Israel, and they're here to do whatever they can to contribute to the work. Look on at verse 8. It says, next to them, Uzziel, the son of Harahiah, the goldsmith, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. So now we have goldsmiths and perfumers. Later on, we're also going to hear merchants are getting in on the work. And so, again, this was not their normal thing. They weren't builders. They were tradesmen. They had other natural gifts. But there was work to be done. And so they were going to get in there and do whatever they could to help. And we have a little saying here at Harvest that, you know, serve first where you're needed and then where you're gifted. Sometimes there's just a need of the Lord that we need to step up and we've got to fill so that the work can continue and move forward. And we all do our parts to make that happen. Look at verse 9. Next to them, Raphael, the son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. And we're going to see that phrase throughout the chapter several times. The half-ruler of this district, the half-ruler of that district, the ruler of this city, the leader of this city. So you have all these political and, and you know, people of high public position, high status, and they're still here working. They weren't above the work. 
They weren't above doing their part just because they had a title, just because they had some position out in the, in the world or in the culture that gave them some clout. They still humbled themselves and came and did the work of the Lord. Verse 10. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Haram, repaired opposite his house. And again, we're going to see that phrase several times in chapter 3. Opposite his house, opposite his house, opposite his house. And I think the reason Nehemiah included that was to show us that this wasn't just a city thing. This wasn't just a, a temple thing or a church thing. This was a personal thing. These people were building because this was their city. This was their God. This was their faith. And they wanted to make sure that they were doing their part. And so they stepped outside their front doors and they're like, I'll take the, I'll own this section right here. And they started building. Started doing their part. Look at verse 12. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahash, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. Talk about a cultural shift, right? This was definitely not considered woman's work in ancient Near East biblical times, right? Women didn't do building of walls. But in this case, the people of God are saying, you know what? We don't care what the culture says. We're here to serve the Lord. And so sons and daughters side by side, men and women doing their part, and contributing to the work, getting after it because God had called them to do something great for his name. Verse 26, jump all the way down to 26. It says, And the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. So now we have the temple servants. He's also, also later on they're talking about the gatekeepers. These were kind of the lowest guys in the societal status. They were the, servants. They were the, they were the ones who had the least to gain over the city being restored, because it wasn't really their city anyways. They were just servants to the other guys. But they loved the Lord. And they believed in God and the work of the Lord. And so they're here and they're working, even though maybe they don't gain as much as others. And what I see here is that list after list, person after person, God was calling every single person in Jerusalem, in his kingdom, to do their part, no matter how big, no matter how small. It wasn't a comparison of, I built this much and you only built that much. It was just, no, we're all here doing what we can, doing our part to build the work. It was about partnership in the Lord. Except for one. Let me show you this last verse. Go back to verse 5. Verse 5, it says this, Next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Can you imagine that being the one place that you made the Bible? Like your one spot was that you would not stoop to serve the Lord. right in the middle of this huge list, person after person, group after group, who were doing their part in serving the Lord. There was one group, one set of people who didn't step up, who didn't buy in. They were too busy, they were too selfish, they were too prideful to do the work of the Lord. But despite that, I love to see, encouraged to see, 
that that didn't stop the work of the Lord one little bit. Right? God's still going to accomplish whatever he wants, regardless of whether or not I agree to do my part. God doesn't need me, but he invites me to be a part. You see, the loss right here is not God's loss, it's their loss. Because they were invited into the work of the Lord to experience the good hand of God on their life, to be a part of what God was doing, and they missed it. Because they weren't willing to stoop, to bow, to humble themselves, and to serve the Lord and his great work. And they missed a blessing They missed experiencing the good hand of God on their life like Nehemiah had and like the people were having. This is exactly our philosophy here at Harvest. We make a big deal here about ministry and about working for the Lord and about serving, that it's a team effort. I'm just back this morning doing new membership interviews for several people who are wanting to join our church. Praise the Lord. And one of the things we go through with every member is like, listen, you need to be serving somewhere, right? Not because we're so hard up for volunteers or because we want to twist your arm. It's because we want you to experience the grace of God and the joy of serving the Lord and getting to be a part of the work that God is doing. And when you miss that, you miss a part of what it means to follow Christ. So no matter how big or small the task, no matter... Whether you think it's super important or you think it's just second nature, we all have to do our part to advance the mission. As we all do our parts, it all comes together and makes it work. And the great thing is that as we do our part to serve the Lord, we get to be a part of God's work and his hand blessing us, blessing our church, and blessing all those who come in contact with us as we're serving the Lord together. So first of all, we do that every week here at Harvest, Sundays, Wednesdays, other nights of the week. There are places for you to serve. There are places for you to get plugged in and greet or help with parking or help with signs or setup or kids ministry or worship ministry or tech. We have all these opportunities for people to serve the Lord so that you can be a part of what God's doing and get to experience that grace in your life. So that's the first way we would, we would challenge you here to, to be partners with us, to be in partnership with us in the Lord. That's a regular basis. But there's a second thing, as I've already talked about a little bit, you know, we've, we've adopted Church Baptist, we're now one church family, we're so excited, we're moving forward together, and now we've, God's been gracious enough to give us this building over there in Afton, and, and in this next season of ministry here, we're looking at how can we maximize that building to be the best resource possible to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and make disciples here in our region. But that's going to require some work on our part. It's going to require us stepping up and doing some extra service, some extra work, some extra things to be a part of moving the ball forward on that. And it's not going to be just like five of us. It's going to be a partnership of every single person, not doing equal amount but making an equal sacrifice to do what I can do, big or small, to help move the work forward as we partner together to build what God has given us to build. I'm so excited to share more with you about that, but not today. 
in the coming weeks. We're putting it together. We're planning. We're doing our part. We're going to be bringing that to you very soon. We're so excited to share with you what God's calling us to do in the coming weeks. But right now, I want us to just sit in this reality, in this understanding of what God's calling us to as Christians, regardless of that project. To take new ground with God, we must all do our part for his glory. Church, I can't do this as your pastor. Our elder and staff team can't do this just with us. Even small group leaders, we can't do this by ourselves. We need the entire church family partnering together to push forward in the work of the Lord. Taking new ground requires faithful action in the face of adversity. There are going to be obstacles. There have already been some. There are going to be more. And as the obstacles continue to come, what we're learning here from Nehemiah is that if we have a plan from the Lord, if we have a passion for the Lord, and if we have partnership together, God can still do amazing work in taking new ground for his glory through this church. And so church, my challenge to you right now is simply this. As we look to the future of harvest, as we look to the future of what God's calling us to do, it's our turn to build. It's our turn to strengthen our hands for the work and do whatever part we can do so that God can bring all this together and do a great thing for his name. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Let's respond to the Lord. Father, we just come to you now. God, we thank you so much. Lord, just for your grace on our lives or your grace on this church. Lord, we, we have seen you move time and time again over the last three and a half years. We're so thankful, God, that you have called us to this great work. Lord, that you have called us in to your family. Lord, we would not have it any other way. Father, we love you. We believe in you. We believe that you've called us to this time, to this place, to take new ground for your glory. So right now, Lord, we're asking you to help us, Lord, strengthen our hands. Strengthen our hands for the work. Strengthen our hands for the mission. Lord, help us all to do our part to further your kingdom, to make more disciples in your name. It's all about you. Lord, we know that you are with us. We've seen it time and time again. We know that you will lead us in your perfect ways. So Lord, we trust you. We trust you every step of the way. Lead us now. In Christ's name we pray.